Everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. You know, sometimes you try something, brother, and it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But what's important is that you try. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to 52 Conversations. to 52 Conversations with B. Moore. I'm your host, and my guest for today is actually a musical legend. He is a musician, he's a writer, he's an arranger, he's a producer, political activist, and even an Olympian. And we want to welcome to the platform James Ntume. Thank you so much for that welcome. Absolutely. You know, uh, Ntume, when I looked at your bio, it's so rich Man, it, it put me in the mind of Ernest Hemingway, you know. <laughs> One huge adventure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But, you know, I want to, you know, for our conversation today, I'd like to stroll down memory lane a little bit and look at some of the highlights of such an incredible journey. So we'll start by going back to South Philadelphia. You are the son of Jimmy Heath. But you were raised by your mom, Bertha, and stepdad, James Hengase Foreman. Uh, he, yes, sir. Yes. Well, see, I, I, I don't use uh, the word step. I don't say stepbrother or stepsister. You know, we're all sisters, and that's my father. Uh, Jimmy Heath, as you said, is my biological father. The father that raised me with James Hengase Foreman, along with my mother, Bertha Foreman. But, you know, uh, Hengase, he was a notable jazz pianist on the Philly scene himself, yes, so, sir. yeah, yes, sir. that's all right. So let me ask you this, what was life like growing up in such a, a rich musical environment? Well, it, it was actually incredible. I mean, but like, as a nine, ten-year-old kid, I, I can't sit here and say, ooh, you know, I realized, I realized you know, fully how deep it was. I mean, for example, maybe one night at dinner, there was Jesse Gillespie, you know, Another night, there's Lalo Schifrin or uh, John Coltrane, you know what I mean? Uh, Cannonball Avenue, all these wonderful, great, Miles Davis, all these wonderful, great men coming through. But I knew one thing, when I would sit after dinner was the most fascinating, to hear those conversations, you know. You you just knew you were in in, in the realm of something very special. Wow. So, what type of things were they talking about? I mean, I, I would remember, you know, like, conversations that lasted for hours just describing sound, like what kind of sound they would, they would love to get out of their horn. Just understanding how intricate music is, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it's not just what you hear, it's what you imagine before you play it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can hear a lot of stuff, brother, but if it don't come out right, it ain't right. But these guys were masters, and they constantly, you know, honed their, their craft, constantly practiced. Definitely. No, that's that's got to be awesome. So now, did you have an instrument of choice or a, an instrument of assignment or, you know, that you focused on? Well, you know, I found out early on that I, I like, I'm, I'm totally self-taught. Uh, I found out that, you know, if I, because obviously there was a piano in the house, it was a Steinway. And I found out very early on, like maybe around 11 or 12, that, you know, if I heard a song, I kind of could go 
Nice, nice. And so, but but you know, you didn't really choose the the path of music, at least in early on. Uh, early on no. for you, it was a, athletics, right? Yes, yes. Swim- early on, I was a swimmer. And that opened doors for you. How did you discover swimming? As you know, we we don't well, talk about outs, you know, for young brothers in terms of trying to find a yeah, way. A, a, a black swimmer is like a purple unicorn. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know very few if you can find any at all. But uh, my father uh, came to me uh, one day, I think I was around again, 12, 13. And he said, man, look, you're not going to be tall. And, uh, you know, that broke my heart because I was, you know, I had to go to the NBA, you know, you know, you know all the young cats, you know, you want to be, you know, a, a, a star basketball player. I could play, but the truth was I wasn't going to be tall. So he started talking to me about swimming. And then uh, he was my first coach, my brother and I's first coach. And uh, that just worked out pretty good. And at the end of that uh, sojourn, uh, I was the Philadelphia backstroke champion for the city of Philadelphia. And then I was the first black to ever win the uh, Middle Atlantic AAU championship. So, you know, you know, and then I was off to L.A. to train with the, uh, the next Olympic coach, a guy named Don Gamble. Nice, nice. And speaking of the Olympics, that's kind of my next destination I want to go to. Mexico City, and the year was 1968. You know, I saw everything like everybody else did. The impact of the 68 Olympics with uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, you know. Yeah, but, you know, tell me from your perspective, having been a part of the program, the Olympic team, or being a part of the whole Olympic uh, experience, you know, even though you didn't go to Mexico City, what was that like seeing that experience and, and thinking about those two young men and what they did and the impact that it had on you personally? Well, the impact was on, uh, it was a generational impact because at that time, you know, in, in the country, man, you, you had, you know, huge political movements that were basically being spawned out of universities. I mean, you had the Black Panthers, you had us organizations. We had various organizations that were seeking, you know, to, to redefine ourselves. You know, we, we were kind of breaking from the civil rights uh, era, which was pretty much the era of our parents. And, uh, you know, it was, it was an exciting time all over the world. You know, you had the, uh, the young white students that were protesting the war. You know, it was just a lot of internal search, you know, and, and it helped reshape, you know, the society as we know. Very important period. And you were, I mean, you were rolling with folks like Milana Karinga. Right. And, and the Black Panther Party. You know, tell me about what that was like. Well, I joined us organization that was with Karinga uh, in 1960, uh, at the end of 66 uh, going into 67. And, uh, and, and, you know, I knew the Panthers. I knew Bunchy Carter. We were very close. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, it was just a, a period, and like I said, a lot of young brothers and sisters, you know, the Afros, you know, everybody was developing their sense of, of, of black pride. Man. So it, it was like, like I said, I, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but just it was a very exciting period. Man. Nice. But, you know, in all of that, uh, through those experiences, you still were involved with the music. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And how did that did that help to sh- to shape your sound or to even shape your approach to the music? Sure, you know, uh, because at that time, you know, I was I was pretty much opening myself up to you know to mostly jazz. You know, I 
you was kind of uh, interesting. You know, most, a lot of times you find cats that come up in jazz and that's their main focus or come up in, uh, you know, R&B and funk and that's their main focus. I had the, the opportunity to grow up being able to merge both worlds, you know. And, you know, just, just as a last person in the jazz idiom, that uh, maybe not the last person that you worked with, but definitely an influential person that you worked with was Miles Davis. You came back from the West Coast over to the East Coast, I believe, and then you started working with him pretty shortly after you got back into yes, to the New York uh-huh. scene. What what did that opportunity provide for you working with Miles? that end in terms of being able to do that. I mean, after your experience with him, a few years had passed, and you hooked up with uh, Reggie Lucas and Tawafa Agui and, right. and formed the band Entume, your namesake. And uh, yes. Entume, when exactly did you change your name from... Uh, uh, I, I changed my, my name in 1966. In 1966, I see. Okay, okay. But you had connected with these individuals and came up with a really a, a sound, a, a unique sound that kind of blended your previous experiences of jazz uh, into right. what, what's known as sophistifunk. Right, right. And that kind of started with the also the productions, you know, especially Mills, Charles Hyman, you know, um, Roberta Flack, you know, those songs, that's where I got a chance to really explore it. And with that band, and, and then, like I was telling you earlier, then when one day I sat down to create some music, and I couldn't write nothing, man. I couldn't hear nothing. It, it sounded, everything I was getting ready to start playing sounded like something I'd already done. And I knew right then I had to step away. So I took off a year. I didn't produce anybody. We found a, a, a small studio here in Jersey and put together a new band. And that second band was the band that, that produced Juicy Fruit, You, Me, and E, and all that. So I had decided to change directions and wow. evolve. Did you ever get any um, blowback from, from uh, the jazz world for changing lanes or shifting gears, if oh, you will? Spelling out? Yes. <laughs> yeah, they called it spelling out, and I just laughed. Uh, well, if you write music just so somebody 
doesn't uh, attack you. If you if you that thin skin, you can never try anything. See, you can never try anything because you're too scared to, to face rejection. I never mind trying something. You know, because sometimes you try something, brother, and, and it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But what's important is that you tried. Mm. One of the problems with the music now, man, is everything sounds great for the most part. Interesting. And we can all lie and, and pretend that it doesn't, but it does. Yeah, you yeah. Got few, you got a few very creative people, uh, uh, J. Cole, uh, Kendrick Lamar, a few others, but come on, man. If you can only point to three or four cats that really stand out, then that means the barrel is not that good. No, that's true. You know, and I definitely want to come back to that in terms of, the you know, uh, looking forward into the new music and what's coming up and, you know, we're, what directions maybe you think that it should go. But before we do that, I want to definitely talk about your hit that you've produced with Fentume called You, Me, and He. <laughs> now, let me tell you, brother, I, I looked at the video just just before our conversation, or not too long before our conversation, I should say. And one of the things that I thought about as I was looking at the video, I said, you know, most songs with similar themes usually has some guy singing yeah. you, me, and she. Right. <laughs> and, and this is, even though this was the 1980s, but it was still way before a lot of the women empowerment, Beyonce, and right. Me, me Too movement, right. and all of this. Was this approach in songwriting and production considered new or different? What was the response and well, reaction? I had never heard a song like that. I, I, that's all I can say. And when I was writing it, uh, basically what I wanted to do was take the love triangle theme, like you said, that has been, it's been around forever. But I flipped the onus on it. And I had, and it's a woman singing to her husband that there's another one, you know. And that's some deep stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, like I think to watch the opening line, there's something I want to say, try and understand. There's another in my life. Yeah. He's my lover, but I'm your wife. You mean he? I mean, come on, man. Yeah. You know? And uh, it, had to, it took a lot of dudes. Up. I'll give you a little side story on that. Okay. We were performing in Florida, man. And the promoter called me at the hotel and said, man, I'm too mad. I don't know if you'll go on stage tonight. I said, well, he said, man, I, we just got a call. You know, somebody friend in your life said if you step on the stage, you know, they were going to put a cap in you. Because uh, his wife kept playing you mean he at the house. And, and so it must have meant that she had a relationship with me. I'm going to tell you how crazy it can get, man. So, uh, of course, I had to go out and play. I had to sit down. We were, so when I walked out, I told them to put all the, the lights in, in, in the hall up. And I told everybody to look to, their, to the person to their left and to the person to their right. I didn't say nothing about, you know, somebody had threatened to me. I said, but keep those faces in your mind. And I said, okay, turn the lights out and let's talk. And we had a great time. Oh, man. That was courageous on your part, but it definitely, your, your story definitely elevates just how much that penetrated even in that day, because that's just not yeah. even sung about or produced, put out, you know, in terms of records and things of that nature, let alone necessarily talked about. You know, it's kind of like a, a taboo. <laughs> to, so, you know, I mean, you produce this song. Now, I want to go back to a point that you had made earlier about, you know, just where you hit that point where you wasn't able to really write 
in the in the jazz at AM anymore, and you just kind of got stuck there. Now, after Juicy Fruit had come out, you know what? Almost what fifteen, almost twenty years afterward, here comes Biggie Smalls wanting to to sample your song and use it as a part of 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 his new music. Now. I have to ask you, and, I, and I'm glad that the legal, because I was reading up on it, and legally he did it the right way. He came to you and he asked you, and you know, you made, you did a deal, and that was good. But from an artist's perspective, what was it like for you to hear Biggie's interpretation of your song with your sample, with your previously produced Juicy Fruit being sampled? musician and a songwriter uh, I would agree with that (laughs) I would agree with that perspective Um, but yeah you know I mean but when you hear it I mean what does that you know because you know I think about it like this and 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 I'll put it out there and you tell me your response to it you know they say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery correct yeah okay so now when you sample somebody's music and kind of put it into your own thing to me, that's beyond imitation. That's really taking it and maybe elevating it, at least hopefully elevating it in a way that taking it beyond what it was or maybe at least beyond time-wise in terms of what it was. So I would think that from the originator, as the originator of that music, it would at least evoke some sort of feelings of, of you know, good feelings of, you know, wow, someone was able to take my music and extrapolate it to the next generation. That's yeah. exactly how I felt. To nice. me, it was, it was an honor, you know, and it was an honor to, to see the next generation embrace music that we had created in the 80s. And then for that song to go on and be actually one of the most sample songs in hip hop. Yes, definitely. Definitely. No, that's, you know, that's definitely a. That's an honor. That's nice. An honor. Nice. So let's, let's take it to the present day. And, and you have, I mean, I, there's things that on here. 
that I have, haven't even mentioned in terms of some of the things that you've done even beyond the music, you know, the work that you've done uh, with WBLS in terms of the open line talk show. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the open line show and, and what you've done with that. Well, open line was a, a black political talk show uh, that was on, uh, it started on Kids FM. And uh, a Bob Slade who, who ran the show had been asking me for several years, because sometimes I would go on as a guest to say, man, think about coming on to co-host the show with me and you, and we get a third person. So it was funny, it was the year that I started doing the Up and Coming, and that was 94, that I decided uh, to, to go ahead and do that. And I brought on Bob Pickett, and uh, I ended up doing 20 years. Also during that time, you know, I, I became very close with Minister Farrakhan, and he would, he would invite me on all these uh, uh, political uh, journeys with him. So I would go to, uh, I've been to Libya several times, to Sudan, South Africa, Cuba, you know, I've been all over, brother, you know. Very nice. So let me ask you, what are you doing these days? What are you up to these days? Well, right now, uh, I've decided to come out. And I was working on a solo project for Tawasa. And then she sounds great, and we get ready to do a, a solo project on her. As a matter of fact, she's been doing some concerts. If you go online, uh, YouTube, you can see uh, excerpts from some, uh, some of her concerts. Just Tawasa AG, you know, in concert. But that's what I'm focused on now. I see. And I understand that there is an upcoming documentary um, on TV One, Unsung? No, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, my kids wanted me to do that look. He said, I'm 71 years old. You know what I mean? You need to lay down some of your story. You know what I mean? Definitely. That's not my, not, not my kind of thing, you know, but uh, I guess it'll be cool. Okay. Nice. Nice. So what's uh, what's next? I mean, you have, you. I, I don't want to say that you've done it all, but you, you've done a lot more than <laughs> many others. So, you know, what's what's next? All right. No, that's I hear you. No, that's that's great. That's great. But that, and it, you know, uh, it sounds like you leave yourself open for the opportunity for new experiences. You have to. You have to. You always got to be open to new sounds and new directions. Who cares what I did five years ago? What I did yesterday? I only care about can I hear something new for tomorrow? People get they get trapped in, in the quicksand of sameness. I don't do that, man. My, my, my history has never been that. I'm, I'm constantly trying to evolve. And I think that's the true calling of an artist. Constantly trying to evolve. Because once you start doing the same stuff, who cares? Mm. No, that's so true. I, I think I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> okay. My guest has been in Tumay. This is wonderful having you, brother, sitting down and talking with you for a few moments. Uh, just so many things, so many accolades that go beyond your name. And I don't know, if, if someone else calls you the Ernest Hemingway of, uh, <laughs> of black music, you heard it here first. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. All right, Unsung, James and Tumay, airs this Sunday, May 20th at 9 p.m. on TV One. 
52 Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.